how great thou art. That is the ultimate, the most important, the most amazing, the most worthy of reflection conclusion of the story of the resurrection. If we want to understand what the resurrection is ultimately about, it's about the greatness of God. Yes, the resurrection affects us. Yes, there are some great implications for us in the resurrection. As Kyle read earlier in our service, since we have been resurrected with Christ, there is a huge implication for us as well. But the grandest and ultimate implication of the resurrection is the greatness of God. That's my hope for us this morning to understand and to reflect and to remember. The glory of God the Father in Easter. The glory of God the Father in Easter. We have meditated this weekend, Thursday night and Friday night, and then this morning about the glory of God in the Easter story. We all of us think of, of Jesus, and rightly so. Jesus is the one who suffered. Jesus is the one who told the Father, not my will, but yours. Jesus is the one who endured the cross. Jesus is the one who was resurrected. But behind this all story, this entire story, is the power of God, is the plan of God, is the will of God, is the will, act of God the Father acting in His Son Jesus to redeem the world back to himself. So at the end of the age, when everything will be subdued under the feet of Christ, Christ will turn back the kingdom to his Father. The ultimate purpose of the Easter story is a grandeur of God. And that's what I hope for us to be reminded of this morning. As a way of introduction, I want to read to you seven phrases from the Bible. Seven phrases. Listen carefully to these phrases from the Bible. Our preaching is in vain. Some of you say, I knew it. I always thought it's a waste of time to go to church every Sunday morning and listen to the pastor preach. Our preaching is in vain. Your faith is is in vain. Mm, I wondered about that. We, the ministers, are even found to be misrepresenting God. Oh yeah, there's lots of you out there. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep have perished. And we, Christians, are of all people most to be pitied. I may have just confirmed some of your doubts. 
Friends, each of these phrases come from the Bible. Each of these phrases are true. If Christ had not resurrected from the dead. But he has. And therefore, each of those statements are not true. Christ has resurrected from the dead. And it is to this great news that we want to turn this morning. The word of the Lord for us this morning comes from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. If you're here this morning and you have not brought a Bible with you, we encourage you, find a Bible and you have a seat in front of you. It's on page number 999, 999. We encourage you to open the book of the book that God had inspired, the book that we use for our worship, the book that we use for our standard, for how to live, how to approach God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 28. And by the way, if you're visiting us this morning and you do not own a Bible, please take the Bible in front of you. Please take it with you. It's yours to have. We'd love for you to have it. But here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, that not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be 
all in all. That God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer and ask the Lord to give us his grace? Our gracious Father, you have given us Christ for our redemption. You have revealed yourself to us through the Bible. Now we ask, would you give us your grace that we may understand the weightiness of your amazing and ultimate purpose to be all in all. Give us, we pray, your Holy Spirit. I pray that you use these words to speak to our hearts. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Friends, if you are a Christian this morning, first of all, let me say, I'm so pleased to see so many of you here this, this morning. So many new faces. Some of you are family members of members in this congregation. You have gathered to, to be together this Easter morning with your beloved. Praise God. We, we're so glad you're here. Others of you are, are, are visiting, and perhaps for the first time, or you've been with us before, I don't know much about you. But all of us this morning who are Christians, and let me qualify what I mean by that. I mean, Christians, not just in name, but in reality. Not just you thinking you're a Christian, and, and, but that's it. I'm talking, all of you who are Christians in reality, if inside of you there is a new nature, that's what it means to be a Christian, if there's a new life inside of you from above, a life given to you by God, then you have experienced the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Whether you realize it or not. Prior to being a Christian, you were dead spiritually. And when you became a Christian, you became alive in Christ. Some of you may still have a hard time understanding this language, so let me unpack it a little further. Prior to being a Christian, the things of God seemed dull to you, irrelevant, uninteresting, or simply plain wrong. But then something happened to you, and you began to hear and understand the gospel, the message of God's salvation, which he provided for us through his Christ Jesus. And you believed this message. And you accepted it. And you embraced it. And all of a sudden, something started changing in your life. All of a sudden, the things of God began to be sweet in your heart. And you started loving God. And you started loving people with a new love, a different kind of love that you didn't have before. His commandments became no longer just a, a grudging duty but a delight spurring from a heart of gratitude 
and you experience a hunger for the Word of God and a hate and a repulsion against sin. These are some of the biblical evidences that something has happened inside of you. A new birth. A new life from above. You were made alive with Christ. All of this is possible because Christ himself was raised from the dead. Friends, some people consider themselves Christians, but they haven't experienced any of the things I just mentioned. And perhaps even this morning, to some of you, these things that I mentioned are still foreign. Friends, people can be religious without experiencing the power of the resurrection. Religion has no true power. Religion may have influence. It certainly has the ability to persuade people to do things for their God, hoping that somehow people may rescue themselves or score brownie points with God, trying to buy His favor. But religion itself has no power to rescue people. But the Christian message is very different. The gospel of God has power. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. This gospel is not the power of man for salvation. It's the power of God to rescue us, to save us, to save sinners from our rebellion by giving His Son Jesus to cover the penalty of our rebellion, God now calls people to Himself to turn away from their own ways and believe in what Jesus has done in our place so that by believing in His name, we may have life, a new life from God, a new life that we cannot muster up of ourselves this is the good news of the gospel. But just proclaiming this news, by merely saying it, do you know that there's power in it? The message of this gospel, when proclaimed, has power. So that the power of God is actually at work in the mere words of proclaiming this news. We're effectually called to respond to God, to turn ourselves in the arms of God and ask Him to save us, for He alone has the power. We don't. Friend, I wonder, have you ever experienced the power of the resurrection? Have you ever? Is there a new life in you? a new quality of life, 
a new love, a new obedience to God, a new worship of God. Can people notice that in you? Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth about the resurrection of Jesus, not because they did not believe the resurrection. They, they believed it. Paul writes about the resurrection of Jesus because these believers in Corinth didn't believe the implications of the resurrection for their lives. They didn't believe the implications of the resurrection for their lives. Look at verse 12. Look at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? <laughs> now, why would some people in the church in Corinth actually proclaim there is no resurrection from the dead? Look at verse 33. Um, look, it's, it's, it's later than the passage we have read. Paul comes back to this question because this was an issue. There is no resurrection from the dead. And these guys were claiming to be Christians. So here's what Paul says. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there will be no resurrection from the dead, we can live however we want to in this life. We can live life with us at its center. We can live life for our own pleasure because death is the end of it all. But if death is not the end, if there's something beyond death, then what we do in this life matters greatly. That's why in verse 34, Paul says to some of these Christians at Corinth, wake up. Listen to this one. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Wow, Paul. Thanks. This little line tells us what Paul was trying to do in this passage, he's trying to awaken people who believe in the resurrection of Jesus. They didn't have a problem with that. They had a hard time with believing the resurrection of the dead because the resurrection of the dead implies that how we live in this life matters. And these Christians had a hard time with that. They had a hard time with the idea that they should stop sinning. They stubbornly kept on sinning. If there's no resurrection from the dead at the end of life, who cares? Eat, drink, be merry, enjoy life, because you're going to die. But Paul says, listen, folks, the resurrection of Jesus is true, and therefore something else is true. There are some implications of that. Our resurrection is true. Friends, to believe in the resurrection of Jesus as simply a historical fact does not settle the issue. It's not enough. It's not enough simply to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I look around this crowd, and most of you probably believe that. But it's not enough. There are implications in the resurrection of Jesus that are tied to it. You can't just hold on to the resurrection of Jesus and dismiss everything else that that resurrection implies for us. 
the resurrection of Jesus tells us a lot about the salvation of God. And this is what Paul will unpack in this passage. The resurrection of Jesus tells us a lot about the salvation of God. What does this resurrection of Jesus tell us about the salvation of God? Three things, three short things I'd like to point to you. First, it's a reversal of destinies. It's a reversal of destinies. Look at verse 21. The resurrection of Jesus undoes the destiny of Adam that Adam brought to the human race. Paul says in verse 21, As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the one man, Adam, introduced death in our existence, but the other man, Jesus, brought the resurrection of the dead into our existence. That's what Paul says specifically in verse 22. For as Adam, or as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Friends, because of Christ's resurrection, we can look differently at death. Instead of experiencing or expecting the end, instead of expecting our perishing, we should expect the greater, greatest reversal of destinies. But regardless of your religious background, regardless of your experience, I wonder, how are you dealing with death? Do you think much about it? Are you afraid of it? Do you put it off, thinking you got all the time in the world? The book of Ecclesiastes gives us a very wise um, counsel, very unintuitive for, for, for modern Americans today. Uh, it says that it's better to go to a funeral service than to a party. Because at least at a funeral service, man can be reminded of his destiny, of what, of what we are going to experience. We all have to die because of Adam. We all have to die because of our sin. How can we be saved from the penalty of our sin? The Bible tells us in the most plain language that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Salvation from the penalty of sin, salvation from the power of sin, and in the very end, salvation from the presence of sin. So that in the very end, our destiny will no longer be bound to death, but to life. So that we can look at death as a defeated enemy. Friends, when Christians die, we have a great expectation to look forward to. The resurrection of our bodies. The full salvation that God has prepared for us. That's the first implication. That's the first truth that the resurrection of Jesus tells us about God's salvation for us. It's a great reversal of destinies. But there's a second thing. The resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning. The resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning. We often think, and rightly so, that the resurrection of Jesus is the climax. Right? I mean, honestly, look at ourselves this morning. Perhaps some of us come to, to church just on Easter. Why? Because we think that's a climax. Right? That, 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 that's the biggest thing. But the resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning. The entire gospel message stands or falls with the resurrection. That's true. But the resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning. Look at verse 23. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. That's how Paul describes the resurrection of Jesus. The first fruits. And when was the last time you talked about the first fruits? Oh, I just went to H-E-B to buy some fruits. But they're the first fruits. Doesn't make sense. This picture of the first fruits doesn't make sense in a world in which we go and do our grocery shopping uh, from H-E-B or Randall's or Central Market or Whole Foods. It comes from the world of agriculture where people actually had to work and plant and water and wait for the fruit to grow. And then there came that, that, that great week or day or, or moment when you start seeing the fruits ripening, getting color, and they're ready to be picked up. And you are excited. These are the first fruits. You know what that meant? If you lived in that kind of world, it meant there's a harvest coming. This is just the beginning of way more that is happening. And Paul uses this language of first fruits to describe the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning. I remember our congregation mentioned this morning to me that uh, this past week, this past Thursday, was 100 years from the birth of her father. He passed away a long time ago. And I said to her, that must have been a hard day. Maybe she was just silent and said, but, but I'm looking forward to the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning. In death, we Christians have something to look forward to. Because the resurrection of Jesus is just the beginning of that which all who are in Christ will experience. The third thing that the resurrection of Jesus tells us about the salvation of God is that it is ultimately about God. The salvation of God is ultimately about God. And that's what the resurrection of Jesus tells us. Verse 23, after the resurrection of Jesus is the beginning, and then all will be resurrected as well, Look what happens. Look what we're told in verse 24. Then comes the end. When he, Jesus, delivers a kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority, and power. Now, why would Christ do this? Why would Christ turn over the kingdom back to his Father? Why should we know about this future event? After all, Jesus is God as well. They're one God. And yet, Paul tells us something amazing, a mystery, and yet something clear, that in the end, in the very end, at the end of the end, Christ, after he has subdued all things under his feet, Christ will turn the kingdom back to his Father. This is a transaction that happens between the members of the Trinity. Why? In verse 28, we are given an answer. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be in subjection to him, the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, namely the Son. Why? That God 
may be all in all. That God may be all in all. This is a grand point to which our salvation moves. That God, the Father, may be all in all. That's why throughout this passage, and actually in many places in the Bible, when we see a description of the resurrection of Jesus, sometimes it says Jesus rose from the dead. But most of the time, it's actually in the passive. Jesus was raised from the dead. By who? By his Father. It's not like Jesus died, God forsook Christ on the cross as we saw Saturday, uh, Friday, and now God is just waiting to see, all right, Jesus, let's see. Are you going to do it or not? No. It is God the Father who's acting in piercing his son, in striking his shepherd, in forsaking the Son on the cross. And Sunday morning, God the Father is raising His Son from the dead. God the Father is the one who's orchestrating all of this, is the one who's actually acting all of this. Christ is a means by which God's plan of salvation takes place. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who applies all of that to our hearts. That's a Trinitarian implication of the story of, of, of Easter. God the Father plans it all. God the Father actually acts in Christ. Then the Spirit applies it on our hearts. But all of this is to point out that God the Father is the one who's acting in the story of, of Easter. Then in, in verse 27, we, we hear and read that God the Father is actually the one who has put all things under subjection to Christ. Not even Christ is just earning this on his own. God the Father is putting all things under the authority of Christ so that at the end of time, Christ himself will put all things in subjection to his Father. The plan of redemption was initiated by God the Father. It was the Father who gave the Son for our redemption. It was the Father who acted in the cross. It was the Father who acted in the resurrection, so that in the end, the Father will be all in all. Friends, the plan of redemption started with the Father and ended, or will end with the Father. This has huge implications for how we think of the salvation God prepared for us. It's ultimately not about us. Yes, it involves us for sure. It involves our new life with Christ. But in the end, it's not about us. Many people would love to accept the news of salvation if ultimately salvation is about themselves. If ultimately salvation is about what they get, what they benefit. But friends, the story of salvation has its core in God himself. The story of salvation has its ultimate goal in God himself. That God may be all in all. That's why we have Easter. It doesn't say that God may be some in some. It doesn't even say that God may be some in all. So that we can still have our own way. 
Why is even Jesus portrayed here as being submitted to the Father? The point that God is all in all. He will have it all. And we don't understand the mystery of the Trinity. How can they all be equal and yet there is a submission within the Trinity? I don't understand the mystery of that, but I can understand this principle that God may be all in all. There's nothing outside of God that will have purpose and meaning. Everything will be subdued to Him. And the Son will do this willingly and joyfully. Friends, what this means is that when we think of God's salvation for us in Christ, remember it's about God, not about us. We struggle. We struggle because we, in our hearts, in our lives, we want to make life about us. And we would like to use even God for our purposes. God, why have you done this? Why have you done this for me? But it's not about that. It's ultimately about God, who is all in all. John Newton wrote a, a, a poem who eventually became a hymn. And I'd like to read these words to you because I think they, they point to the, the great challenge and, and, and battle we have in our own hearts. It's a prayer about this believer that asks God to take away temptation, to take away the hindrances so that he might serve God. This, the language is a little archaic. It's a little old. It's 1600s. Uh, but bear with the language and listen to what it says. And some of you may, some of you may identify with a struggle in this poem. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may know and seek thy all in me. 
why does God answer prayer in such strange ways and allows us to go to moments of despair, allows us to continue to struggle, allows us to see our brokenness day in and day out so that he may break our schemes of earthly joy that we may seek and know that he is all in all. Why does Paul tell us about this ultimate end of all creation? The inevitable chain of events set in motion by Christ's resurrection has ultimately to do with God's own absolute authority over all things. God himself stands as both the source and goal of all that Christ has done for us. I love how Peter begins his letter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what Christ, God has done. And he has done it so that he may be all in all. 